1: Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm your host and expert layman Matt Goodwin, and I am joined, as always, by your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. On this episode, we have the honor and privilege to chat with Mike Carter. We'll discuss Raz Slam, the rules and first-round breakdowns, the lessons we can learn from 2021 about how to approach closers this year, what the landscape looks like for saves in 2022 drafts, and so much more. But before we get to all of that, Mike, how you doing?
2: I'm good, Matt. I'm trying to get through the last vestiges of winter here in the Midwest and hoping for a CBA by the end of the week. How about you? <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. The, the Well, not
1: the last vestiges of winter, uh, the uh, the CBA agreement by the end of the week. Uh, but thank you for helping us make sure that we talk about weather. It's important that we don't ever forget, which we never, ever do. Um here, winter has been very strange up in, in New England or, or the southern tip of New England or whatever you want to call this, the New York City metro area, southern Connecticut. Uh, it's going to be 65 degrees tomorrow, which is awesome. And then on Friday, there's a chance of like four to six inches of snow. So that's <laughs> uh, that's how we're living here. Alexander, how is, uh, how's things in D.C.?
3: It is like spring. I, we're bordering on 70 degrees. I mean, it's going to like... Potentially snow here over the weekend too. I'm sure it won't. I'm sure it'll just like fake <laughs> snow and they'll have like a class canceled or something like that. it like, you know, nothing happens to the roads, because that's been like the norm lately. Mm, uh, but yeah, right. things have been pretty good, pretty good. No complaints.
1: That's excellent. It's very, very good to hear. Um Mike, we are super excited to have you. This has been a long time coming. We've been trying to get this set up and scheduled for what feels like almost the entire time that we've been a podcast. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, your connection to baseball, uh, fantasy baseball, uh, and and a little bit about like where you write and contribute and, and all of that
2: kind of uh, um, give us a little intro to Mike. Sure. Well, you know, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, so I'm a diehard White Sox fan. I got to get that out of the way first. So um, <laughs> that kind of colors my perceptions about a lot of different things. But um, I've been playing fantasy baseball for the better part of on and off for about 30 years. Um, I started when I was in high school and kind of faded when I was in college and in my 20s when I was getting married and doing all those kind of things. And I didn't have a lot of time. I came back to it again recently, about 10, 12 years ago, and started to get a little bit more serious. But really, it wasn't until about 2020 when I started to get really serious about playing. I got involved in doing some writing. Um, Michael Simeone from SB Streamer had put out an ad looking for writers. Uh, and I thought I would give it a try. I, I had written um, in college. I was a, a journalist by trade when I first went into teaching. Uh, I went to Indiana, and I got my degree there, and I thought, well, I'm going to be a writer, and then it didn't really work out that way. I got into teaching and been a teacher for 27 years and a special ed administrator as well. So what ended up happening was I got a chance doing that, and then SB Streamer um, and the guys from Fanatic had gotten together, and it looked like there was going to be this big, Gigantic website, and it didn't end up working out. I ended up staying at Roto Fanatic and working for uh, Matt Williams at the time. Now it's owned by several different people, but I started covering bullpens there in 2020. Perfect timing, actually, because right as the time that I started writing was when the pandemic hit. Yep. And so working from home, I don't want to say this too loudly, but working from <laughs> home, I had a little bit more time. When I wasn't running IEP meetings and such to, um, to write and to do some investigating. So I got into doing that. And then I went back to SP Streamer and, and have done a few things for them over the course of the last year. Um, I also got a, a chance to work at Fantrax last year for Eric Cross, who's an incredible boss. So is Michael Simeone, And so is Matt, Michael Gauvier. Those guys are my bosses too. I got a lot of bosses writing for a lot of different websites, um, and I was able to write about uh, two star pictures there, which was a labor of love. Basically, what I've done is I've I've gotten some of the harder pieces to write because nobody else um, is dumb enough to to do them, and I'm just I'm just happy to have the opportunity to do it. So uh, I really enjoy doing that. It's been really interesting the last couple of years. I never thought um, someone at my age, you know, I'm a little bit older than the average guy that's and in, in girl that are working in the fantasy industry, I never thought I'd really get an opportunity to do it like I have. And I just eat it up. I mean, it's like the most yeah. fun I've, I've had in years, you know? So yeah, that's a little bit about me. What's, uh, what's your favorite thing about baseball? I just, you know, I, I, re- I grew up playing it. I I played when I was in, in grade school. I played when I was in high school, not very well. Uh, I loved playing. I, I love the, the thing that I think I love the most about it is the, is the, the pitcher and catcher relationship and and the, the psychology of how that all comes together. And now my son is 11 and he's, he's pretty into it now too. And so getting to share that with him and coach his team and his buddies uh, is I'm around it all the time. Like every day, there's some level of baseball thing going on. And I couldn't be happier about that, you know, it takes me away from the doldrums of my day job, you know, so yeah, yeah. I re- I love that. I just love it so much. I can't remember a time when I didn't obsess or fantasize over baseball, you know, laying there at three o'clock in the morning, wondering who's going to play right field for the White Sox next year, you know, like, <laughs> and I still do that. I'm almost 50 years old. I still think that way, you know, it's crazy. That's amazing. And, and speaking of the beautiful
1: moments of baseball, I just want to call this out. Um, I don't know if I if I even responded when I saw it on Twitter, but it was a very touching at the end of the last season. I think you were coaching your son's team, right? Yeah. yeah. And the, the season ended on, on a tough moment and you, you tweeted out a picture that was uh, it was just really, really beautiful. A moment with father and son and, and connecting over baseball and learning life's lessons. So um, I really listen. If you're out there and you're not following Mike on Twitter, why don't you shout that out right now? We'll, we'll have you do it again at the end. But uh, Mike, what's your Twitter handle?
2: I have the worst Twitter handle of all time, I've been told. It's uh, at MDRC0508. I joined Twitter as a joke about five years ago just to follow my daughter's class. And uh, I ended up having to use it now to be on Twitter to be part of the game, and it's terrible. And Matt Williams tells me all the time, he's like, you know, you could change that, and I'm like, uh, I don't know, like, you know,
1: yeah, once you get too far into the rabbit hole, it's hard to let go, right? There's a, like a nostalgic attachment, but uh, the reason I bring it up right now is that I there's there's a lot of humanity that I see on your timeline and. I love it. I eat it up. I think it's amazing and wonderful. So thank you for sharing that very personal and vulnerable, but beautiful moment with the world.
2: Oh, I appreciate that, man. That was really something. A a lot of people took a look at that one too, which was really cool. My daughter actually took the picture. I was, I was starting to work on the field. It was about 95 degrees. All I wanted to do was um, get him a slurpee and me a beer. Um, And uh, he had made the last out of the game and uh it was we were getting our teeth kicked in and we came back a little bit and uh unfortunately made the last out there and as we were going home that day he said you know i i love playing and i want to get better and i thought that was like music to my ears so he's been involved in hitting lessons all winter here and he's really working on getting his swing nailed down and getting better so he can be a better teammate and a better player which is all you can ask for as a dad you know yeah absolutely
1: Uh, I want to turn to Alex in a second here and and talk a little bit about Raz Slam, because I think it's a really interesting topic for us to start. But I got to ask you one last question, Mike, uh, before we get into the more of the meat of the episode. Best cigar and beer combination.
2: Well, right now, for me, that's an easy one. So what I've been doing is I I get the the ten dollar Macanudo orange that I have over here at the at the. smoke store that's next door to our jewel. So on a Friday night, I'll stop and get the kids Pete frozen pizzas. And I will get myself a Macanudo. That's been what I've been on lately, not a super high value, you know, value uh, cigar, but about a $10 cigar, which is perfect for what I need. And I'm pairing that right now with Edmund Fitzgerald Porter uh great lakes brewing um it's it's a great match for me there's probably people that have much more sophisticated palates than i do they would make me that probably are laughing at me when they hear that but that is that'll do it for me uh every friday if i get a chance to do it if it's not 10 degrees below zero you can find me on my porch <laughs> at about 4:30 in the afternoon doing that so
1: yeah. It's, I, I don't know anything about cigars. I know a lot about beers. I don't know a lot about cigars, but I, it does seem to be one of those things that brings you joy. And I like talking to people about the things that bring them joy. So uh, thank you for, for indulging me there for a moment. Alexander, let's talk Raz Slam. Uh, so you All and right. I are both picking <laughs> from the four spot in our respective leagues. We don't need to go into tremendous depth here, but I do, I, I want to talk about the format and the approach. Um, because it's a unique setup. So, uh, Mike, this is the part where I told you, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. I'm going to call out the the scoring. I'm going to call out the, the scoring for Raz slam. And I want to get your hot take. And then Alexander, I'm going to have you kind of talk about what you're seeing in terms of the early trends in the first round. So, uh, hitting, okay. Hitting scoring and at bat is worth negative one point. A hit is worth four, a run worth two, a home run is worth six, an RBI two, a stolen base five.
3: Can I like wow. give like an example of what that turns into so y'all can kind of like feel for what that means? Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, you, you get negative points for at bats because like you get positive points as long as the at bat turns into something good. But that's their way of just like making sure people who aren't very good lose points for their inefficiency. <laughs> but at the end of the season, someone like um, Trey Turner, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Juan Soto, those guys are all projected for somewhere around 825 points, depending on which projection system you're using. Um, they all end up turning out somewhere on the the verge of like five and a half points a game. There are some people who are worth a little bit more at the top end. Um, Tatis is predicted for like six and a half by a lot of people. He looks like an astounding match for exactly this style of play. But as, as you go down, then like the bench level guys are all worth about three. Um, so that's kind of like what it looks like to be good in this sort of, yeah, format.
1: yeah yeah. Wow. it's, it's a very interesting. So having like a hit worth four, but there's no negative points for strikeouts or or caught stealing or anything. It's a very, in terms of a points league, and I don't know your familiarity, uh, either of you with, with points leagues. Um, it's not something that gets a ton of airplay because they're so kind of unique to the setup and, and it's hard to cover from an analysis point of view, uh, but it's very unique um, Mike, have you ever played in a
2: points league? No, not like that. I mean, that's, that's wild. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that you lose points for at bats. Yeah. Considering that's that so much of what's said in fantasy is wanting to get volume of at bats, right? That's really interesting.
3: Well, really, what it is is like you can imagine that it's almost like an out is worth one, and then a hit is worth five. Is a, right. is a way to think about that. Yeah. Right. It's Which amazing. Is crazy
1: because usually a single is worth a point. Usually, in points leagues, there's delineation between doubles and triples, all of those types of things It's more much more spread out, so there's only six offensive point scoring categories it's It's wild and and fascinating um I'm gonna give you the pitching side now because I think Mike that's a little bit more of of what you've covered in depth, so I think this is gonna really uh uh hit home, but maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong. that's fine. It happens all the time um an inning pitched is worth three. Every hit given up is worth a negative point. Every earned run is negative two. Every walk is a negative one. Every strikeout is one. A win is six and a save is eight. And
3: that's it. Yeah. So then to kind of like make that make sense in your visuals, um, a lot of the elite pitchers are going to be giving you somewhere in the range of 15 to like 18 or so points per game on a season long level though. The top end pitchers aren't worth quite as much. So, um, for example, Garrett Cole is projected for, let me get that exact number based off of this. Yeah, about 19 points a game over 31 starts, giving you just shy of 600 points. So, he's worth like a good 225 plus points, fewer than a lot of the guys who'd be going to him or similar ADPs as him in like an nfbc style sort of situation. And then because a lot of the guys who will be on your bench are going to be earning somewhere on the order of 10 points, you know, you're only getting, um, you know, like nine extra points per start from someone like him. So I personally had Garrett Cole 13th on my board as the best pitcher. Generally speaking, pitchers just get pushed down. There are some guys that I would be picking 50th overall in an NFBC league who I might not take in the top 100 in this format. So it's a really interesting, can you play around with the math? Yeah, but also it's just like—is that fun to you? Is it, is a separate conversation? So that's true. I find this really interesting.
1: It's it's interesting person. that you get the three for every inning, which uh, value uh, puts a value on starters, obviously, right? Um, but you get less points for a win than you do a save, which is not the way it traditionally is in a points league. So Mike, how does all that scoring hit you? And I'll, re- I can but, repeat anything. I know you don't
2: have, no, that I wrote point. it. I wrote it down as you were saying it. It's, it terrifies me. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm thinking about it and know, Alexander <laughs> Alexander's the math guy, clearly. Right. But I'm sitting here thinking about if I get a starting pitcher that goes five innings and gives up five hits and like three, you know, two to three runs. I I have nothing to show for it essentially unless he gets a win, right? Like I mean, yeah, it's that's a really tough format, you know. I can understand what Alexander's saying about the value of pitching being pushed way down there. Yeah, for sure. It's it's very interesting how it all
1: shakes out. Now, here's one more one more piece of this that I I didn't say out loud, and I probably should have, is that this is best ball. Um, so you get kind of the best score. Oh, okay. Um, Uh, it automatically creates the align your best lineup from whoever's on your team. And there's only two fob periods for the entire season. So it's it's a lot like a set it and forget it kind of a situation. So it's, it's very interesting. I've never done anything like it. Alexander, how are you feeling about, about kind of just the whole thing so far?
3: So I want to talk about the dumb decisions I'm making in light of the fact (laughs) that like I did the math, right. And now I'm just ready to just, gamble recklessly because i took byron <laughs> buxton in the third round and i'm like sitting here really hoping that um i get some other like high risk ish players coming back to me early just because that's who it's i like, am as a person who doesn't want to be good just have a fun time so i'm hoping to grom gets back to me it would be the uh let me double check that so i can give you the right number if he comes back to me it would be the 45th overall pick wow and he would be my first pitcher. But the thing is, I don't care if I'm bad at pitching because it's just out total output. But if DeGrom plays 20 games and is himself, he'll repay that pick. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's that's the whole idea. So I'm, you know, I'm hoping for the best in some ways. But it's really because of the depth required, you draft 42 rounds of players. It's a test of, like, do you know depth charts? Do you know volume? But also, like can you make sure that you're not just drafting raw volume in the wrong places in some weird ways it's really weird um like that trade-off in some places so i'm i'm really interested to see who like doesn't and does fall in this league if you check out there's a really cool uh tool that Derek rhodes has made that gives adps you can see which players have gone wildly different places so far garrett cole has gone third and he's also gone 21st in this format wow, wow. Um, you know like yeah so you like Teoscar Hernandez has gone between 9th and 28th. DeGrom between 17th and 50th overall. So it's been wild. The most stable people have been like Tyler O'Neill so far because he's been drafted twice. <laughs> we're not very far. <laughs> yeah. It's very much a slow draft first. started today at um,
1: 11, 11 Eastern uh, this morning. So yeah. different so leagues we'll, are in different we'll places. For example, I'm actually just, as we're talking, on the clock in round two in my league. So uh, I have – I can talk it out. By the time this comes out, this will be ancient history. Um, But right now, let me click on the right thing. I am – Kyle Tucker just went. um, and I'm at pick 21. And on the board right now in front of me is your boy, Byron Buxton, uh, Alexander. (laughs) Um, The the person at the top of my board right now is uh, Jordan Alvarez, and I feel very strongly that's probably the pick.
2: Yeah, stop talking. Just do yeah, it exactly yeah.
1: right. Um, but it's interesting because it the at the top of this board is is Alvarez. We've got uh, Sal Perez, Buxton, uh DeGrom is there. Um it, you know, it's it's all very, for somebody who might not throw a lot of innings, you know, with innings being 3 points per uh, Scherzer right below him, Pete Alonso, Teoscar Hernandez. So it's it's very interesting. I'm going to go ahead and click Jordan Alvarez onto my team here. Live click, and he is now mine in, in Raz Slam. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So I got to start Otani, uh, Jordan Alvarez. I think that's a pretty good start for this format.
2: I would I say so. It. I will take it. How are you guys valuing closers in this league? That, so the yeah, interesting
3: that's thing you find question. out here, yeah, the interesting thing you find out here is because saves get pushed up, and I think this is an important part because a lot of closers will appear with greater regularity. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who have stable closer roles end up being a sort of like stable presence in your week to week lineups. Um, you can think of it this way: um, someone who's not that great in real life. Um, I'm going to be mean to Kyle Hendricks, but I'm going to say <laughs> Kyle Hendricks here. <laughs> If he gets a win, he might end up being in your starting lineup once every three weeks or so, right? Right. Um, but let's say that, you know, you get, like, a, a sort of not great Aaron Nola out- outing. He goes five, he doesn't get the decision, um, and he strikes out, like, six, but, like, you know, it's just not great. Maybe he gets you, like, 12 points, like he maybe in some weeks isn't in your lineup. He probably t- typically is. But like because closers have more opportunities to do their job. Yes. There is a much, much greater chance that you can consistently get some floor out of them, which is really nice. So that way you know like if someone really tanks that you're depending on, there's a greater chance you don't end up with like a four point. Yeah uh, right. Week. right. Although a although
1: a blow and save loss it doesn't you know those don't hurt you in terms of negative points but you're giving up hits and walks and you're only pitching one inning. So it's, it's very, very interesting. And from the closer standpoint, you're not going to get, maybe there's a handful of guys who are going to give you four outs, right? You get one and a third or something. There's not a lot of those guys who do the two inning save anymore. So at three points per inning, there's there's also that trade off two to three too.
3: appearances per week is the thing though right. right yeah right so you're getting you might three innings a week
1: then. so yeah I mean I I hear your point I'm I'm certainly not going to argue math with you Alexander that's a fool's errand <laughs> um, <laughs> I picked up on that in the first
2: ten minutes <laughs> but uh,
1: just in terms of you know the the week to week. Um, you know, the fluctuations there, if you look at it a season long stats, sure. But the week to week fluctuations, it's, I don't know. It's just all very fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah.
3: I'm with you. Um, One of the things I'm interested to try to pull off is waiting on pitching and then seeing if I can get enough guys that I can just hope get two starts every three weeks. But, I might end up being a sucker and drafting Edwin Diaz pretty high. <laughs> well, what's, just cause I, I want him or something like yeah, that. Just but, for like the sure. consistency. It's also yeah, the but, fact that it's best ball
1: covers you a little bit. So if you, if you draft the Kyle Hendricks of the world and they blow up and you've got closers, you know, that closer is going to leapfrog Kyle Hendricks. He's not going to hurt you because it's best ball format. So, I don't know. It's just so many moving parts. I think the way they've set this up is absolutely fascinating, unique, different, and, and kudos uh, to, to um, uh, all the people over there, at Rasball, uh, make this
2: happen. I'm not a mathematician, right? But if you, if you had a guy like, like you were saying, Alexander, like Diaz, right? So let's say he pitches one in and he gets three strikeouts and he gets the save, and he, and say he does that twice in the same week. That's providing you something that you could use there pretty well. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's,
3: that, it's yeah. something, it's something to really think about. Yeah. The, the thing that I'm kind of like mentally doing here is I think every three weeks you get a two-start week. Other than that, you're kind of behind. And if you get a loss in a one-start week, that is basically as if the pitcher just gave you nothing, probably. Yeah. So you've got to have it set up so that you have enough starters on your on your like roster that aside from like maybe one or two aces who you're relying on consistently, you're just kind of churning through Kyle Hendricks two start weeks or so yeah. pretty often. And then maybe have a couple closers in there who might be like fill the gaps. So we'll see what I end up doing. Um, I know that in leagues like this, this is where like the real expert expert people show off some crazy strategies that win them a lot of money. Um So we'll, see what i end up doing and what a lot of other people end up doing this is more than anything else though because it's just have fun and get crazy a great time to just like go wild online and just see what people (laughs) do and have a fun time so that's part of the other reason i'm happy to draft buxton if it works cool if it if he gets hurt in may and he doesn't play a whole lot i can be angry and not have lost a whole lot
1: so right, right. I mean, this is for certainly not a money league for us, but it's it's modeled after leagues that are money leagues. Um It's fascinating; it really is. Uh, Mike, I want to start to talk about closers. I'm going to bring up uh, some some work that I actually did in the the uh, off season here with Pitcher List about the kind of I called it the closer kerfuffle. Um, and then talk about like lessons from 2021 and all of that. But before we get an opportunity to dive in, we are going to need to take a very small break. And we're back. So Mike, let's talk about the, the, uh, guts of the episode here. And that's, that's closers. And they're really challenging. Um, I, I let's talk a little bit. We have a segment we call numbers of the week. And so I'm going to throw you some numbers that I used in, in my piece, um, that came out, I think it was December. And I just want you to, to give me your, you know, like live reaction, uh, your recorded live reaction. Um, I'm going to go down, down the list here of of stuff that I pulled from my own work, uh, which sounds like I'm tooting my own horn. I'm not really, but I found these numbers fascinating. Um, So in 2021, there were 198 different pitchers to get at least one save 198 to get at least one save. 84 of those only got one. Wow. So 84 of the 198 only got one not really helpful when you're trying to to stack safes of those 198 19.7%, which is 39 of them earned double digit save totals. So only 39 guys, double digit save totals of those original 198. There were only nine who got more than 30.
2: Yep. And, And nobody
1: had more than 40, right? Yep. Absolutely. Nobody had
2: 40, I should say. Sorry. I don't I don't think
1: anybody hit 40, right? It's 39. No. Um, and out of the nine pitchers to record 30 or more saves in 2021, there were nine of them. Only four of those were in the top 10 in 2020. So
2: live reaction. It is a minefield <laughs> <laughs> trying to find out, trying to figure this situation out. Right. I mean, it, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's almost like you said with chasing Alexander's math before the fool's errand. Yeah. Trying to figure out who's going to be the people who who are going to get these saves. You know, the, the game has really changed a lot in the way that we've in the last five years. And we've been, we've talked about that before. And Matt, you and I have talked about it, I think uh, over Twitter, but you know, if you go back to 2016, just even five years before last year, there were five guys that had 40 plus. Yeah. There were 15 that had 30 or more. So you you're seeing that scarcity really kind of play out and I I think that that's going to be something we're going to see continue. I don't I don't see that ending anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Alexander, what do those numbers say to you from the quant side of things?
3: You know, um trying to figure out like how that scarcity shows up is one of the things that I think is most fools errand e. Um <laughs> so this week, um kind of prompted by a discussion that we briefly talked about last week on the pod and that i've been thinking about a lot uh, it's like a, a long thread that i was at the bottom of <laughs> <laughs> that was like Phil salt, and a lot of other smart people who do modeling a little different than him which are we wrong well good question um <laughs> and rudy gamble asked me how as someone who's kind of more of a um z scores adherent compared to like standing points gained it be, basically i can't do standing points game for my method cuz i just don't have the data available um like how i tend to look at things and where people end up ranked and one of the things i pointed out and one of the reasons why i haven't got a good answer and i do not know actually where josh hater lands on my draft board right now is that the difference between josh hater and the guy who is on the projected waiver wire is not accurate to how like the difference between josh hater and like the waiver wire in season if someone is projected for 10 saves by ATC or whoever, that does not mean that they are going to get one save every three weeks. That probably means they get 10 saves over the course of two months, lose the job, and then get cut. Right. Which means, for me, I I tend to think, does that push the top guys down? Because they're actually competing with something that's slightly better than we're giving recognition to. But also, like, if someone pretty good-ish gets cut, like, how much are we willing to spend there? So I think both of those forces tend to push them down my board. But at the same time, a lot of these calculators tend to spit out Josh Hader as a top 10 pitcher. And I'm like, is that accurate? I don't know. Um, So I, I'm working on that. Um, And I, I did some stuff earlier today that had him show up, like, ridiculously high. And I was like, mm, nope, there was a bug here. And <laughs> I'm, like, really trying to make sure that I don't do anything stupid. Uh, hopefully this work actually gets <laughs> online somewhere soon. Um, but... I, as someone who wrote about closers last year as well, I just know that things are wildly unpredictable in different ways than averages and stuff can show up. And it's generally my job and the job of other people in my seat to be skeptical of the numbers that we generate instead of just wildly impressed by our ability to click the enter button. Um, because <laughs> hey, this now, is hard. I do feel good no, no, about no.
1: myself when I hit the enter button.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but this is definitely a place that tests the the metal of people who try to make their numbers look like real life. And that's been my goal and it has not been pretty. So that's how I know this is something where I want to listen to people who do things a little differently for sure.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't really use standing points gained in, in my analysis either, but that's mostly because I have no idea what that is. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so, um, I, I'm going to have to defer to your analysis on that. I, I think that the takeaway for me looking at things more from the narrative point of view, as I do, um, just out of sheer necessity is the idea that if, if you have nine pitchers last year who were quote unquote, the elite. OK, let's let's just use that term. They they gave you the saves that you drafted them to give you whether you are. Maybe they came in, you know, and it took the job and got them either way. However, you want to look at it. Nine of them. Only four of those were top top 10 in 2020. Who are the mm-hmm. top closers that we're looking at now who aren't going to finish in the top 10 this year? And and is there any way to know or is it a dart throw? And if it's a dart throw, then are we are we kind of chasing some silly things by drafting Hendricks and Hayter so early or because we have such, such a, a level of confidence that they are going to be two of those four or five or three or whatever the case is this year it does push them up and we should be doing it. and in the fact that I think you can make a case in terms of like a logical argument for any of those things underscores how unbelievably shifty and crazy this, this landscape is. Um, So I want to shift into our central question and talk about lessons learned from last year. Both of you wrote about closers and bullpens. So uh, Mike, I'm going to come to you first. What's your biggest takeaway from 2021 uh, closer situations that you're bringing with you into
2: 2022? Well, I think we've all been touching on it here so far already, which is that it's a really fickle bunch uh, it's it's really hard to kind of determine what your strategy should be. Uh, I think it's really league dependent, context dependent. But I think the thing that I really took away from last year is something that I talked about with guys and girls when we were down in first pitch Arizona in October, which is that the greatest skill a closer can really have is, is uh, job security. And it it has nothing to do with their stuff, how good it is, how bad it is. It's that do they have the role? And if they have the role, I think that's the thing that I learned the most last year. Um, just by pure speculation, because of the nature of what I have to do for Fanatic and doing the closing remarks, I found myself scanning what managers were saying during the week, be- because what they say goes a long way towards what's going to end up happening. And so, for example, if I could just throw this example at you, um, before the season started, there was a lot of people that were, you know, what do they call it on Twitter, adding adding you, don't yeah. <laughs> add me. So I, I had said, I said, I really think based on what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing that Class A is going to be the closer in Cleveland. And I had about 20 people reach out and say, you're wrong, it's Karinchek. Karinchik is the way better arm Karinchik has the high power velocity um, he's going to get better bigger strikeouts I go no but here's what Terry Francona said Terry Francona said I want to use him as a stopper I want to use him in the fifth or sixth inning when we have trouble and get out of it that made made sense to me in terms of looking at what class a's role was going to be and so I speculated from that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out clearly I'm not that it was going to be class a Uh, Same thing happened with Toronto last year, right? I mean, uh, the first week of the season, when Merriweather got a couple of saves that first week, people were spending $350 of their fab budget on a guy that didn't get another save the rest of the year. So it's just, it's a crazy thing, right? So I think that's probably my biggest takeaway is that it's a total crapshoot. You really don't know, even though you think that you might know. Uh, And that job security is really the the key thing that I'm looking at, not necessarily at skills. And I know that that sort of flies in the face of a lot of fantasy baseball logic. I think opportunity
1: is huge. I I think that's true across the board. Alexander, what are some of the things you learned uh, in in your work last year?
3: So um, it was a lot of like trying to make sense of is so-and-so good in really, really small samples? And I think that really made me feel for the managers who have to make those same decisions whenever they decide to trust people. Um, There were some really interesting times where I would, while I was writing these up, find that someone's season-long numbers were not at all what I thought they would be. Uh, This happened a couple times for, like, Will Smith. Um, And then I think also, I don't know, a couple other guys I I feel like that kind of, like, had the same thing happen for me. Hector Norris had a weird run for a hot minute. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a guy that was closing for the dodgers that you might have heard of as well uh had a funky season i'm actually <laughs> saying that weird because i cannot remember the name of him because <laughs> my brain is not called kenley jansen, kenley jansen um yeah yeah. yeah yeah so kenley jansen had some really weird like is this era real is this whip real stuff going on because his walk rate jumped up a whole bunch and it was a bunch of those are like oh actually by the sorts of things that i like to use for um for Like, just really, really quick, let's go look at the fan brass page for the ERA estimators. They were all garbage because they'd all pitched 20 innings, and they aren't supposed to be good at that level. Um, So that was a constant sort of, like, I feel for these managers when they're making hard decisions where someone hasn't earned trust over a really long period of time. Now, that said, when you actually looked at how some of these managers use people, it was much less chaotic than you'd think. It's just that the other things they had to deal with are just constant, constant... Little injuries making things really difficult. I remember looking at the Tampa Babel pen in the middle of the season, and they had used for cl- like save opportunities at that point, the same closer for like 10 days in a row or like 10 opportunities in a row. They just hadn't had a save opportunity in two weeks because they had won so many games by so many runs yeah. and we hadn't even noticed that they actually had a closer <laughs> um, yeah. and then it didn't matter. Cause like I got hurt. <laughs> I can't even remember who it was because they had so many different guys who were in situations like that all year. So I have definitely been someone who would look at like Rick Graham's saves lists and save and holds list for different uh, places being on the team that kind of would say, Hey, take a look at this guy. Something weird's happening. Can I move this guy up to be the closer on the chart and stuff like that was, was fun. But man, I do not want to do it again because it was so much like taxing work early in the mornings, but also because it's just, you're going to be wrong so often.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it feels like maybe the biggest dart throw in baseball for something that everybody's kind of looking at. I mean, even steals, which is also a difficult category to kind of nail down. I think you get a better sense of who is having, are going to be getting those opportunities and who's got the green light and can make the, those decisions. Uh, saves are just so hard to chase. It's frustrating, especially as things have evolved. Um, and with that, let's talk about some actual pitchers that can kind of tell this story. So I'm going to throw out some uh, some names. We've already kind of talked about the top tier, but just in case there's anything left that either of you want to say, I'm going to bring up uh, the top tier closers here, Liam Hendricks and Josh Hader. What does... Th- What is it about those two particular pitchers that kind of embody that tier of closer and why people are willing to go and get them so early? Alexander, I'll start with you on this one.
3: I want to talk about Hendricks here in particular, because if I had to draft a guy first off my board, I would pick Hendricks. Um, The thing that makes him so obviously elite is that he's done it. He's done it because he's been good. And people on his team know that because he's done it and he's been good, he's going to continue to have the closer job. There's absolutely no doubt about role. There is like the game plan. There is to have him close. There is no doubt about skill. His, whatever you want to look at is better than anyone else's. All the contact metrics I come up with, he's elite at suppressing hard contact. He strikes out a million people. He doesn't walk people. What more can you ask for? Not a whole lot. So like, He is the guy that you pick when you want to be wrong about other things and get burned elsewhere. Um, If your game plan is to not spend your budget on closers and instead to try to chase starters off the wire, or you want to chase rookie outfielders or whatever off the wire because that's where you want to do things, he's the sort of guy you spend a whole lot of bucks on. And that's actually kind of interesting to me as someone who like tends to have a plan for what I want to chase. I get it. I just actually do like chasing closers off the wire and I don't hate a lot of the great closing options. So I'm never going to get him in any of the big leagues. So um, I, I want to just note that haters actually likely to f- close a few fewer games because well, one they they go to him in more situations where he would have to pitch longer. So other people get vultured saves more often in, um, in Milwaukee. That's actually the one thing I noticed is like he might be, an elite pitcher and he might be the closer but he's not closing every save opportunity just because they will use all of their bullpen arms all at once and then give everyone a day off and there might be another save opportunity the next day and then like there was just like all sorts of guys that you have not heard of that were getting cl- like closing chances just because it was a rest day for him and everybody else in like basically the sixth inning on so that's the thing that like I, it gets underrated you're not going to get all of the chances that your team has if your team's producing a lot of chances. And I think that's what I kind of learned from them. So yeah, I would pick Hendricks over Hater. I probably won't get either.
1: Yeah. Um, let's look at what I've called Tier 2. And and please, Mike, correct me if you think I'm wrong here in, in terms of how I've tiered these pitchers and throw out whatever names you think are better fits. Uh, like I said, I can be, uh, I can be wrong. I, I don't have a problem with that. But I was looking at guys like Emmanuel Classe and Jordan Romano who emerged last year. Maybe they are top tier. Uh they're they're not going before obviously Hendricks and Hayter. Um, but what what what's the story with those guys? I think they have a different story coming into twenty twenty two than they did coming into twenty twenty one. So what's what's their story in terms of like as a case study
2: for what we should be looking for in twenty twenty two? Well, I think I, I love Class A, and I and I we were talking about him a little bit of, a while ago. The one thing that's a little different about him compared to some of the other guys that you might run across here is that, um, you know, he's he's really well known for his his ground ball rate, you know. And I think you know, he doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. Um, he he'll, he's adequate with strikeouts, but if you're really looking for that high octane guy even though he throws hundred miles an hour, he doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. And so I don't know if that's something that will develop for him more over time. Um, but I, I think he's clearly going to be the guy. I mean, Karinczak actually ran into some really hard times. Um, I'm not saying anything about it, but it, you know, this, after the sticky tack incident, he really wasn't the same guy after that. I don't know if there was anything to that. Um, he's always been kind of besieged by walks. Um, mm-hmm. I love Romano too. I think um you know, this is a guy who has been waiting to break out for a while. And Toronto, you know, depending on what they end up doing after this lockout ends, I don't really see them spending big money to go get a Kenley Jansen and come in there and close when they've got a guy that might already be better than Kenley Jansen uh, to close. I think that you just leave him alone. Uh, I actually like Romano and another guy that I throw into this here too, that I get a lot of pushback on is Giovanni Gallegos. I mean, yeah. I I think he's clearly St. Louis's best option. Um I at some point they're going to stop messing around with Hicks and Reyes. I mean they they've got to get some results out of these guys. And I I don't know. I mean there, there's a lot of talk that Reyes is going to go to the rotation. Hicks can't pitch every day. Gallegos just takes the ball and runs with it. I mean at 14 saves there at the end of the year. Uh I, I think he's a guy too that I, I'm really high on this year in this tier. Yeah, it makes me sad because in Dynasty, I I got frustrated
1: with with that situation and I needed the roster spot and I cut him and he's on somebody else's team now. But I think you're right. I think you're absolutely spot on. You you shouldn't change your opinion because it makes me
2: sad. Um, Isn't it weird, weird though, with a guy like Gallego? So because he's that one intersection where not only is he the best arm in their bullpen, but he's also probably going to be their best closer.
1: Yeah, but he doesn't necessarily just have the job out of the gate. I, that's the other thing too. There seems to be like manager stubbornness and style stuff that goes on with who gets the ball, and it's uh, it's it just it, it just one more variable, right, in a situation that's already loaded with them. Um, all right, I want to talk about what I'm calling tier three, and then I kind of have like the the every everybody else afterwards, just because that's kind of the way it works. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about upshots. Um, so the tier three and, and Alexander, I'm going to come back to you for this. So if you want to make connections between this and the tier two guys, please feel free. Uh, this is an open discussion, obviously, but, uh, I've got here like, uh, Chapman and Will Smith, who you talked about before. I Iglesias people who uh, could easily jump tiers, right? I mean, I, it's kind of silly, I guess, tearing closers at this point after talking about how <laughs> unstable and volatile the position can be. But what are what are the lessons there? Why are they going after the other guys? What is it that you see as maybe the warts that people are cautious of? And how does this all link together for you?
3: Actually, I thought that Ricel Iglesias was, like, by ADP probably in the previous tier. I don't know where I'd personally have him either, relatively speaking, for ranking people. I, I like Romano so much, personally, as, like, the guy that I would go after that I don't think about this conversation. I like Romano. I like Diaz. I like their price, and I stopped thinking about everyone else, which is a really selfish thing to do as an analyst, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, one of the things, though, I want to point out, though, with Chapman and Smith in particular, is that those teams can't afford to be dumb about this. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that makes me a little bit more interested. The Angels don't have anybody else who's all that good. Um, Iglesias, I think, has got a really secure job. He's pretty good. Um, and they're going to be in situations where if they happen to give him a lead to protect somehow that rotation and stuff like that, you know, they're going to have to go to him. I think it's an opportunities
1: thing for him, right? Is is the team going Um, to give him enough save opportunity volume to make him elite?
3: And and the thing is, I don't think that's going to be a team. And this is a really weird piece of analysis. That's not going to be a team that gets a whole lot of one, one and two, two games to hand off to the closer it's going to be high scoring with them both because of their like batters and their pitchers and that means typically speaking in my mind more save opportunities just because more runs means more like chances that they're one run apart at 5-4 rather than tied up 2-2 two, two. the difference between the like 80 wins and 90 wins isn't going to be that many save opportunities it really probably matters more in my mind how you're getting your wins so like right That's actually one of the reasons that kind of hater can get marked down. They're going to have so many games potentially where their offense doesn't score quite enough to get them out of the 2 2 sort of situation that, you know, like Peralta and Woodruff and Burns and whoever else they sling into that rotation as time goes on ends up giving them. So, um, I actually, if I'm going to make choices, Iglesias probably gets to the second tier, he just gets drafted pretty high, I think. But getting back to the Chapman piece there. Chapman was scary for a good part of last year. He actively hurt you in best ball, if we're going to get back to that. He probably not would not have been in your starting lineup for at least a month at a time, if not longer. And there's a lot of other really good arms in New York. Now, Chapman has the name brand value. I imagine he worked on some things in the offseason. He's going to get a chance for a good couple of weeks, and he's probably going to be fine. But in the event that he's not, New York cannot afford not to. To make a move, right? The New York media market have will have to have a short after vote. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's the sort of guy where if I had to pick someone to fall out, the market seems like they have all agreed that he has kind of fallen off of his top tier perch, and they're waiting for Loiza Gow or someone else to take that job there. Yeah. And I think that's the anatomy of like a, a closer that who gets dropped after you spend a lot of money on him is got to be a situation where some of those boxes get ticked off. Now, the other option is just someone gets hurt, and when someone gets hurt, you go make a move. Right. It's the will-they-won't-they they dance that I think really damages you in the process and makes these very much unequal situations that are kind of scary to assess and really hard to rank properly. So, um, I don't know. Mike, you got any other guys that you're, like, after kind of staring at the pages, also kind of scared of that you kind of, like, lump into this sort of, like, mental conversation?
2: Yeah, you know, I Chapman and Will Smith are, you know, um, guys that have clearly have com- competition behind them if they falter, right? I mean, uh, Chapman's got Green and Loizaga. He also had a 15.6 percent walk rate last year, which is terrifying as a closer you can't you can't house that as your number one closer and and will Smith, I think you know they've got Matic, but then the other thing you got to remember, they got Kirby H too. And we know how much managers, as Alexander said before, they love those guys who've done it. Guys that have done it have a track record two or three years, four years of doing it. Kirby Yates certainly has that with health. It's very possible that Will Smith could be out of a job uh, very quickly if he if he pitches poorly. A lot of people are going to remember what he did in the playoffs and overdraft him, I think. and I I won't be one of them. Uh, an- another guy that I'm a little concerned about drafting and, and that you I'm seeing go, uh, in this area, as well as Camilo Duval from the Giants. And I know a lot of people really like him. And there's a lot to like there. But the thing that scares me about him is that he's never really done it. And his manager is this guy named Gabe Kapler, who prefers the experienced hand, who seems to prefer Jake McGee. And so now you've got a situation where you're thinking, "Oh, uh, here's a guy that might have 10, you know, top 10 upside, but we really don't even know what his role is going to be yet at this point, right?" So, he's a guy that I I don't mind having, um uh, but I I don't I'm a little afraid of taking him as like my second guy, right? Like my second closer because I just don't know what the role is going to be there. I'd rather roll the dice on a Corey Knebel or a David Bednar at this point than Probably roll on Duval, which probably will make me unpopular among a lot of people, but I'd say it's a strong feeling that I have when I look at what he is.
3: Yeah. When I think of Galaxy Brain, Gabe Kepler, um yeah, there are some things about Duval that make that a very confusing situation. Like he just came in, was lights out, they trusted a hot hand. I think the Giants could make him the most of the time closer, but it's worth remembering. I, mean, I looked at their charts all the time last year. He's going to get rotated. Even if he's a 60-30 sort of split, he's going to get rotated quite a bit. The upside for him is is different than it is for some of the other teams that I think are a little bit more antiquated in how they think about things. That's what makes Hendricks so valuable, is that the White Sox are kind of stupid. (laughs) Well, look who their manager is. They've
1: got a very old-school mentality (laughs) because they've got a very old-school manager. I, I think that's fair. And you, and you brought up Corey Canable. I I want to talk before we get into a little bit of like this little rapid fire three question thing that I want to put out for both of you. Um, and that's upshots people who you uh, think are good arms or are going to have at some point an opportunity who've done it before. Uh, I have on this list, Corey Canable and Paul Seawold. Um, But who else? And Mike, I'll start with you with this one. Who else do you see kind of in those later rounds who are not necessarily on roster resources, uh, you know, closer list, but you think are going to have the job pretty, pretty early on, at least, you know, maybe before the all-star break and are going to wind up ending the season
2: as next year's got to draft this guy. Yeah, I, I love David Bednar, who I just mentioned from the Pirates. Um, I know that there's a lot of people who think Chris Stratton will end up being the closer there. I think that's possible to start the season, but I really like Bednar as a guy that's going to take that job. I mean, he did a really nice job down the stretch for them. He had an ERA under 23 uh, you know, he's 24.5% K to walk ratio. I mean, I, those are the types of things that like make my eyes pop when I start looking at these guys. Uh, He's got a really live arm. He's a guy that I really like. Another guy that I will never, that I never quit on ever, ever, ever is Lucas Sims from Cincinnati. Um, I think his numbers uh, really mask a guy that could be a potentially really, really good closer there in Cincinnati. Um, People will look at the ERA from last year, but 39% strikeout rate, I mean, guy it's just remarkable. You know, he should have had such a better year than what he ended up having. So.
3: Yeah, I just pulled up my uh, sheet with my like. It's not finished yet, so I haven't published it an anywhere. ERA estimator based off hard contact rate, and he has a tw- he had a sixty three percent left on base rate last year. That means, ugh. Okay, that's that is that's really low. unlucky. Yeah, he yeah he uh, by my model would be have been predicted to have a two nine ERA going forward. He is one of. I set my boundaries here for at least 20 appearances and no starters. He was one of six relievers who was projected a sub three ERA by this model, which is uh, tends to regress to the mean, by the way. So Craig Kimbrel, Rysell Iglesias, Devin Williams, Paul Sewald, Lucas Sims, and Edwin Diaz. The guy who is seventh on this list at a 3.01 is art warren the other mm-hmm. dart throw in the cincinnati bullpen so yep. that's my only concern is they got too many people who might be like really really good and also some potentially awful defense in a park that can make this look really frustrating yeah no kidding things go um so those are that's like a big worry for me uh but there are a lot of really interesting arms when i just do this sort take a look at things you know you wonder how this all shakes out now i need to update some stuff because i know that um austin adams is not being punished nearly enough for his hit by pit trade in this model <laughs> um but yeah there's a lot of other interesting guys that kind of pop pop off that also have some dart throw capability we're not drafting taylor rogers as if he's i know, love him not just been taylor rogers again i love um, him yeah yeah me too like i got him real late in the on the wire saddle satellite league along with Canabel and uh who else did i get in that one um no, the, i've been joking um there are um there are two barlows i got the good barlow in Kansas City.
2: <laughs> <laughs> very good very That's good so funny. stay yeah, away from joe barlow at all
3: costs <laughs> yeah, yeah. so um i um i uh was able to get then three guys who were kind of like within like the, the top 20 but all like probably not the top 10 and i think three guys in that range if you can convince the rest of the people you're drafting with to not pick them is really great it's just that a lot of other people are kind of thinking about when they want to pull the trigger on these guys and you got to really thread the needle you probably you know are going to end up in a sticky situation where you realize the guy that you really like gets you know on someone else's team if you're not careful so and um, if you're
1: waiting until that part of the draft then you're totally missed out right yeah if you're trying to wait for the safety net and the safety net goes then you really are in trouble
2: last year what i was doing was trying to take uh, one of the top guys or who i thought was going to be a top guy and then pairing them with um a, a shared bullpen situation so last year and a couple of leagues i did the column rogers in in minnesota that didn't go very well i also did the sims in uh amir garrett in cincinnati and that went really poorly as well I, i'm not convinced that's that's not a bad strategy though i mean i think i think you could still probably get away with it in one league this year what i did um i i had well who did i end up taking for i think i got iglesias first and then i took every seattle potential closer with dart throws <laughs> at the end. Like I, I ended up I got seawalled. I I think the only one I didn't get was Steckenrider, Rider, which was my luck he'll end up being the closer. Uh, yeah, but yeah, of course. But yeah. anyway, yeah, just to that point. I mean I think there's a lot of ways to go about looking at the position this year. Yeah. Um all right I want I do want to transition
1: here into a couple of rapid fire questions and then and then switch topics before we uh uh unfortunately I have to bring the episode to an end. So I'm going to ask the question. I honestly want I'm going to test your metal here, both of you. I want one-word one, one word answers. I will consider a name a word if you would like to give first names, too. But I want you to just tell me who you think is, is the answer to these questions. So, Alexander, I'm going to start with you, okay? Who ends the season as the top closer? Hendricks. Mike? I think it'll be Hendricks as well. Okay. I, I would say Hendricks as well. I think it's the safe money. I I don't think you're crazy, though, if you were to say – if you wanted to do a bold prediction and say class a turns out to be the top closer this year, and all it's all it is is an injury and an opportunity away, right? If Hendricks gets hurt and, uh, and then hater gets a few fewer opportunities, it it wouldn't surprise me if somebody in that second tier leapfrogs. And I just broke my own rule, but um, okay. (laughs) The next, the next question, Alexander, which top five closer loses his job? Oh, um, do you want a second to look up the top five? Uh, yeah, I
3: need to look I at the think top five. I think you should look five. at the That's top five. Mike,
1: I, I can go to you first. I, you might be in a similar situation. Top five closer. I can start with mine while you guys look it up if you'd like. But I don't want to uh, steal thunder here. No, go ahead. Start. Okay, so my, my guy is Will Smith. I think Will Smith is going top five. From last year, he was a top five. I'm not talking about ADP. Oh, but
3: do you mean top five by like... Last year production. Last
1: year production.
3: Right. Yep. Okay. So yeah, then let's let me let me pull up here because I'm curious and I think this would be fun. I'm gonna pull up the Rasball Player rater because I trust their um, closer way of going about this. So actually. you're gonna
1: blow up my whole system here. That's okay. That's what we yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm anyway, sorry. it's fine. I mean, it's still it's, it's still a fun exercise either way. I think it's, it's Will Smith is is the most likely from the people who finished top five last year. Um, based on I, I think I sorted by saves. It was something very simple um mm-hmm. Will Smith okay, okay. Will Smith is the one I think there's like as to your point Mike I think there's competition for Matic and then also Yates there and I don't I don't think they're going to be super patient with him if um, especially coming off of the World Series win, I don't think they're going to be super patient with him sure, if he's not sure. doing great. So that would be my pick. Again, I didn't mean to steal thunder. If, if that's... no,
2: I think I think the easiest fall from grace here is Melanson in Arizona. I mean, he had 39 saves last year. I don't think he gets anywhere near that again, and his his potential for explosion and spontaneous combustion is going to be very high. Uh I, I he's not a guy that I really have any interest in drafting unless I absolutely need saves.
3: If you are uh, enrolling in a league soon, this is either of y'all, anyone who's listening, if you're if you're um, planning on paying money to play fantasy baseball soon and part of your plan in any of those drafts is uh, drafting Mark Belanson, what I'm encouraging you to do is instead to not get into the league and instead just send me the money. <laughs> uh, maybe donate it to someone else if you don't want to send it to me. Just please do not spend money to draft Mark Blanson. I I cannot. I can't. Um, (laughs) How do you really
2: feel? Please don't hold back. Yeah, right.
3: I do not think that Mark Melanson will be closing games in Arizona by the end of May. Um, He's not that great. No. He had a lot of luck riding last year and a lot of really great opportunity. He does not get half as much opportunity and if a few balls stop just ra- randomly flying into Fernando Tatis's glove. Um, I'm not even going to say Tatis is a great defender. It was just a lot of like some good positioning and some excellent luck.
2: Sure was. Uh,
3: no, I, I do not think he finishes inside the top 30 earned values of closers next year. I, I don't see it. I'm looking here. I have the Razzball Player Rater top ten for Yahoo style leagues for twelve team, which is not NFBC or anything like that. And we're often talking about these sorts of contexts, but let's be clear: who actually plays fantasy baseball? Mostly not people who can spend thousands of dollars. <laughs> um, so Hendricks, Iglesias, Hader, Jansen, and Alex Reyes were their top five and earned values. Mm. So I mean, like I can cheat and say Alex Reyes won't repeat, but that's not interesting. <laughs> Romano, Diaz, Melanson, Kimbrell, and Presley are the other guys in the top five class a actually because a lack of strikeout volume does mm-hmm. dip a little bit mm-hmm. so if i have to pick a guy to not repeat at the top who's going really high i'm actually rather out on class a just because of like the the shape of his production isn't mm-hmm. as good as we think it is and i think the jardians are not going to jar the galaxy <laughs> all that well that that, that that comparison just fell apart really bad. i i don't know that i don't believe in that team i don't believe in them at all and i I think that there's a good chance that he's just not going to get the volume of really great opportunities or the strikeouts to be really worth a top 50 pick. Like he'd be probably somewhere around my 10th or so closer. Mm-hmm. If I have to pick him.
1: What about uh, uh, Kimbrell in that list? To are, uh, how, 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 what do we think happens with him? It seems especially Mike, you're, you're the Chicago guy, right? Like, yeah. Well, yeah.
2: What's the the writing oh. on the wall there? The conventional wisdom here has been that they were going to trade him. I mean, they, they signed him with a $16 million uh, extension, uh, or they picked up his, not not an extension, but they picked up his contract. Um, I think that that market remains to be determined. I mean, I, there'd been a lot of talk that Philadelphia was interested in him, but then they signed uh, K'Nable. Could they use K'Nable in a different role and and get, um, and, and get Kimbrell there potentially if they give me Gene Segura. Sure you know, we need a second baseman. Um, But I, you know, you could see him going to Miami. You could see him uh, going to a couple of different San Diego would be another uh, landing spot for him potentially. Uh, I think that they trade him, um, especially since they signed Kendall Graveman to kind of take that same role uh, to a three-year contract, which is kind of mind boggling, but um, it is what it is. I think that they trade him. Yeah.
1: It seems to be the, the, uh, the the conventional wisdom, as you said, makes a lot of Um, sense.
2: Uh, all right, we're going to come
1: to our very last segment here. Uh, we're going to go with off the books. We haven't hit this one in a while, Alexander, so we're skipping the pass-fail tonight to go with off the books. Um, and I want to talk about an article that PitcherList's own Steve Diswaley wrote uh, about post-hype sleepers, and I'm not going to spoil the piece. Go check it out. It's it's easy to find on PitcherList. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece um but i i want to use it as inspiration for people that that you think might and this doesn't have to be pitchers this is just we're on just regular baseball players fantasy players of any any stripe could be closers it's it that they count too um but people who uh you you kind of maybe think are going to bounce back or or be good Uh, after they they weren't or have struggled and and two names that jumped off of the list at me uh, were Keston Hera, who I have a personal battle with because I traded for him in that same dynasty league uh, right before he decided to stop being good at baseball Um, and I think I actually cut him I I just like I needed the space and, and there's he was just taking up room on my roster but there's a part of me that always kind of feels like he he was hype for a reason. Somewhere along the line, guys just don't forget how to play baseball. And if it's a mechanical uh, tweak or something away that he and he all of a sudden he comes storming back, which is exactly what I'm I'm guessing is going to happen now that he's not on my roster anymore. Um, I think that that that's a fascinating pick there uh, for for the the article. And then uh, Adbert Alzale as well. Um, and and you, you could just, again, those are just names to kind of get the the, the uh, old think box uh, working up there. Uh, who were the people maybe that you're thinking of as, I you know, I, I'm not, I don't think this guy's done or I think that he struggled a little bit for a good reason and is really going to uh, emerge as somebody that people are going to, a year from now, they're going to, they're not going to be uh, off the radar. They're going to be firmly on it. Alexander.
3: Um, so I want to take like the long view here and talk about uh, Matt Manning, who I think was not ready for Major League Baseball last year while he was pitching for the Detroit Tigers. Um, we do not know how good he is going to be. And it seemed like you know, we we, we often talk about this. I, I have an on the record past Dustin May hater because his <laughs> stuff moved a whole lot, but not in the ways that actually make you good for the most part. Um, but I don't think that was the problem with Matt Manning last year. I think he just came up, wasn't ready, wasn't all there, and he struggled big time. Like, nothing, nothing ticked for him. I don't think this year is necessarily going to be the year either, but I want to bring him up as a good example of the sort of, like, thinking you have to have. Is there a reason why he didn't click that doesn't mean he isn't talented, but also doesn't mean that our evaluation of talent on him wasn't just based off of smoke and mirrors? Um... How many times have we brought up Castan here on this podcast for me to say, there are choices you make, and sometimes they make you look good by a hard hit right? without making you good at baseball. Um, I-, I do think here is actually a guy that I'm curious about, and I'd love to see him make the getting better changes that are actually necessary to improve. But Manning is a guy that I think I want to watch in like dynasty leagues this year to see how it all comes back together and to see how Detroit handles him which i think is really important now if i also have to pick a hitter who i think like really had some weird stuff happen last year alec bohm was not good at playing third base alec bohm was not good at playing being a hitter last year in terms of actual outcomes like it was ugly but alec bohm hit the ball really hard really often last year it was just into the ground and we've learned um something i think in the long run about dudes who are extremely talented have been successful before. And maybe move off of third base, get a little <laughs> bit better uh, defensive home, and then get to think a little bit more about making adjustments to their swing. Um, I may have taken a guy just like that in the first round of Rise Slam. So, Alex Bohm is a guy that uh, in Dynasty and also in Deep Redraft, I'm gonna be keeping an eye on early in the year to see if he's made team mechanical adjustments, to see if Philly lets him play first and signs a third baseman. Because if so, he's got a lot of the sorts of boxes that I'm interested in rebound hitters ticking. Um, so I can't wait to be wrong again on that one.
1: <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if, if you I'm not saying, obviously, the the player you're alluding to there is, is Vlad. Uh, if I don't think that we're going to see we'll be him, but he could follow the same story arc. Um, I think that that's that's a really uh, a storyline worth watching. Mike, who were some of, of the the guys on your radar in terms of like everybody's off of them because of whatever, but you're still really curious about maybe being on them early
2: if if they show signs of life. Yeah, I you know, two guys that I've been getting a lot of so far this year. Uh one is a pitcher, uh Corey Kluber. I refuse to believe that he's done. I know that there's a downtick in velocity. Uh, he was still locating really well last year before he got hurt. And I think going to Tampa Bay, if they can spring some of, sp- sprinkle some of their magic dust on him, uh, I think he might have a little bit of a rebound. I, I, where he's going in drafts, I mean, nobody seems to have any value for him. Uh, if he's my fifth or sixth pitcher, I would be thrilled. And the guy on offense that I really like, that I'm always intrigued by, that I will never, I'll die on this hill, is Yohan Moncada. I I just refuse to believe that this is who he is. You know, I mean, last year he had his his career best walk rate, um, which I think was about almost 14 percent. He had a lowest strikeout rate of his career. Um, The you know, he's just a really interesting guy. I mean, I I, he's always been a good player. And I think the thing that's happened the last two years is that he was really, really sick with COVID and it was really underplayed and it really affected his legs. He completely stopped running. He had really bad hamstring soreness and leg soreness that it resulted in a lot of rest for him. But I think this guy has got he, the pedigree is there, right? I mean, this is a guy that could 25 home runs, hundred RBI. It could happen. And this could be the year. And he's still only 26. Yeah. <laughs> that's the he that's the crazy centerpiece to me. of the sale deal, right? Yeah, so they got, they traded, uh they got Kopech and him for sale, essentially, Um, and they're expecting big things from Kopech this year, as most people are, but, uh, you know, I, I just think he's, he's a four and a half war player last year for as crappy as people think he was, you know, I mean, so there's talent there, and I think that he could take that next step in that lineup, too. There's a bunch of really good hitters in that lineup, as you guys know, you don't need me to tell you. <laughs> You wonder, you do wonder if he was like one of those long haulers with the
1: COVID where it just takes an extraordinarily long amount of time to truly recover and come back, especially energy levels. And you're talking this level of athletic competition, even being at 98% is going to have a significant impact on the field playing against guys who are at 100.
3: Absolutely. Um, I just pulled up his uh, PL player page because I didn't want to have to like manually calculate what his hard contact rate has been over the past few years. Um, The last year was bad. Uh, ish bad ish, twenty four percent, but also thirteen and a half percent walk rate. So that's thirty seven percent of plate appearances where he's doing something good. That's actually a pretty good mark um overall. Like that's pretty good. um He also hit thirty seven percent or so in twenty nineteen when he wasn't walking as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had thirty one percent hard contact rate that that year and that in seven percent walk rate. So if he's got his legs under him and his plate discipline comes together. There's an interesting combination of choices here where maybe things click together, that 25% strikeout rate and a 13% walk rate sticks around, but maybe he hits the ball hard a little bit more often. And we have a guy who is just an OBP monster and really deserves a higher order back in that lineup again, which is one of the things that made him so valuable in 2019. He should be so. hitting
2: second in that lineup, in my
3: opinion. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, if he's healthy, he can justify it. And then if he's healthy and he's justifying it, maybe we see a few more steals along Mm -hmm. the way. If nothing else, just like that's more PAs every game. That's going to be, you know, more opportunities to score runs. And yeah, like that's what you want. So even if he doesn't secure that and he's just a little bit better, like he can beat his projection, I think, for sure. Um, and I'd love to see it. Um, I, despite any like complaints about Tony Larissa, want every single member of that White Sox club to succeed. They are just a fantastic <laughs> group of guys to watch play baseball. So, Alexander,
1: Johan um, Moncada or Kevin Biggio?
3: Oh, I, I, Moncada, and it's not close. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's the way you were <laughs> describing it, it sounded to me like, like Moncada would be Biggio, except hits the ball hard uh, routinely, right? The way, you're, you're, the you're way not, you were talking
3: about it. You're not actually that far off. I just think the the, the defense is the big difference in that it's going to keep him in the lineup and give him more opportunity. And also, I don't think it's just pure selectivity. He's shown in the past that he's put it all together in a different way, and I think that there's a possibility that some of the passivity might have been just like, my body's not great, but I've got a good eye, Maybe while I'm not feeling as well as I have been, I can generate some more value for the team by taking some more walks. Maybe that was it. Yeah. Um
1: maybe yeah. maybe that's just what the coaches told him to do too. I it's a uh, Biggio is actually somebody who I think in the same vein is, is interesting. I don't I, I'm not like beating down anybody's door to go get him, but you know, people were high on him. He came up and was pretty productive. And um it, I it's it'll be very interesting to see what his twenty twenty two looks like, I think. Um all right. Well, unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of this episode. This has been an f- absolutely fantastic conversation. Mike, I can't thank you enough for joining us. If you could just uh, let everybody know once again where they can find all of your stuff, where they can find you, uh,
2: plug everything that you're doing. Well, you can find me uh, everywhere on Twitter, it seems like, these days. Um, my my handle is at MDRC0508. Um, my home base of operation has been uh, Rotofanatic for the last couple of years, but I also am writing at sp streamer i also add fan tracks and i also write more narrative pieces for a site called 980 know-it-all out of the pacific northwest that is where i really got my start writing about baseball about five or six years ago so that's where i'm at thank you guys so much for having me i'd also like to shout out all my bullpen brethren out there uh that that have made things really interesting and helpful for me especially doug dennis who kind of took me under his wing, for lack of a better term, many years ago. And Ryan and Nate Markham and Pags and Torres and, of course, great all you guys. Um, I I love those guys. They treat me great and uh, make me feel like I know what I'm talking about sometimes, which is kind of cool. So,
1: (laughs) well, we are thrilled to have you and and we'll have to make sure we we bring you back. Maybe what we'll do is we'll see how some closer stuff works out in the season, which is definitely going to start on time. And, uh, and bring you back to, to kind of debrief all the stuff we talked about here and, and see how, how uh, accurate we were. Um, Alexander, now everybody knows where they can
3: find Mike. Can you uh, remind them where they can find us? Well, they can find you on Twitter at the TheCorkedMatt. I'm on Twitter at Chase underscore Rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the PitcherList podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me.
1: All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.